I'm making an executive decision right now. We're going to do that song at the end. We're going to do that song again at the end. I should have swapped it because that's perfect. It is well. Um, King's kids, if you are in second grade or shorter, you are dismissed. Second graders on down. Miss Jerrica's ready to skip down the hallway with you. Hey, rain boots. Somebody's going to hit the puddles after church. Perfect timing. All right, I'm, I'm in need of a strong reader this morning. What I mean by strong is you're, you're not having a chance to have read the chapter ahead of time. Uh, I don't have my usual reader here this morning. So, if you want to divide it up, we're going to do all of Proverbs 13, so maybe two people to read. Anybody brave? Anybody? Any volunteers? I nominate Pat. Do we have a second? <laughs> it's just turned into a business meeting. Uh, Pat, uh, Ms. Mark, you're gonna have to grab that wireless mic and run it out here. Do do now, now since you have been voluntold, you get to pick somebody to either read half of it or a portion of it with you. Uh, are you gonna do that to anybody, or do you just want to handle it? Wow, this is good. So turn with us to Proverbs chapter 13. What translations do you ladies have this morning? I have the New International Version. Okay. All right, so that'll be pretty close to what I'm rolling with. Out of work. All right, Proverbs 13, begin when you are ready. Okay. A wise child loves discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. From the fruits of their words, good persons eat good things, but the desire of the treacherous is for wrongdoing. Those who guard their mouths preserve their lives. Those who open wide their lips come to ruin. The appetite of the lazy craves and gets nothing, while the appetite of the diligent is richly supplied. The righteous hate falsehood, but the wicked act shamefully and disgracefully. Righteousness guards one whose way is upright, but sin overthrows the wicked. Some pretend to be rich, yet have nothing. Others pretend to be poor, yet have great wealth. Wealth is a ransom for a person's life, but the poor get no threats. The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked goes out. By insolence the heedless make strife, but wisdom is with those who take advice. Wealth hastily gotten will dwindle, but those who gather little by little will increase it. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Those who despise the word bring destruction on themselves, but those who respect the commandment will be rewarded. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. Proverbs 13. When we read the New Testament, we very easily see that Jesus lives out the wisdom of God, the way he acts, the things that he says. 
He has clever responses. He's full of kindness, deep understanding about God, deep understanding about the law, deep understanding about the ways of the Spirit. But when we actually pay attention to Jesus' words in the New Testament, we also begin to realize that he himself is the very wisdom of God. So Jesus not only lives out the wisdom of God, he fully embodies the wisdom of God. He is both. He is the wisdom of God and he lives a life that is wise. Ah. Think of a, think of a young sapling, small tree you find growing in your front yard. I live on a corner, so a lot of people walk by. They would probably say, what kind of tree is that? Because <laughs> they, they all seem about the same, the first few feet of growth. You might, you know, if you're some kind of botanist, you might be able to look at the bark or look at the leaves. But for most people, you're going to be like, you don't know what kind of a tree it is. Fast forward in 20 years, you walk by that same tree. And just a glance will tell you, that's a maple, that's an oak. Or maybe not even a glance. Maybe you're just walking under the tree, crunching the acorns, seeing the leaves. You know what kind of tree it is because of the fruit that it's bearing. In the same way, I, I see Jesus as the fullness of God's wisdom, the mighty oak. And I see Proverbs as the sapling, the young, fresh tree. It's, it's teaching us about the fear of the Lord, wisdom, righteousness, justness. It is a mighty oak, but not fully matured. So in Jesus, we find this wisdom that we are plowing through in Proverbs perfectly embodied, perfectly lived out. Proverbs is wisdom. And I'm gonna approach Proverbs 13 a little differently this morning. And it proved to be a little harder than, <laughs> than I thought it would be. I'm attempting to read Proverbs 13 through a Jesus filter, through a Jesus lens. So try to keep up in your bulletin. You got some notes to, we're going to read and go through every verse. There will not be notes on every verse because I didn't want to fill up the entire bulletin. And plus we don't have that long. We're going to, we're going to, Move. We got to keep this thing on the tracks. In Proverbs 1, 13, 1, Proverbs 13, 1, verse 1, a wise son hears or listens to his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. And there are several Proverbs in chapter 13 uh, that follow this line of thinking. Proverbs 10, by insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice, so we've got instruction in verse 1. We've got taking advice in verse 10. And if you turn to verse 18, poverty and grace come, poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction. So there's the vibe I'm, I'm tracking on. Listening, heeding, taking instruction. Did Jesus do that? In Luke chapter 2, verse 48 we have an interesting exchange between Jesus and his parents. It's early in Luke. Jesus is young, maybe 12 or 13. His whole family, in fact, his whole town has traveled from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. Actually from Nazareth up higher north. He was born in Bethlehem, went back to Nazareth. So they've traveled quite a distance from Nazareth all the way down to Jerusalem. After the festival is over, they all travel back. And it's, it's not like you get in the family car. They're all heading the same direction. So you've got, you've got dozens and dozens of people walking together. Jesus is of a pretty good age. He can take care of himself. Everybody says, let's head out. He's probably never disobeyed a thing in his life. They're just assuming he's with them. They get back to Nazareth, no Jesus. They walk back to Jerusalem. They find Jesus in the temple it doesn't answer a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions. Where'd you eat? Where'd you sleep? What have you been doing? He's been in the temple. They've taken care of him. They find him talking to the scribes. In chapter two, verse 48, they say, son, why have you done this to us? Look, 
his mother says, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And Jesus said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. And then Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. Jesus didn't sin. Jesus wasn't disobeying. Let's be clear on that. But his parents had a different expectation. And the expectation wasn't sin either. So we have a little bit of a dilemma. Is Jesus going to plow on, stay in the temple, be raised in the temple, school these guys, get them straight? And the Bible says Jesus, he received the instruction and advice of his parents. He went down with them and was subject to them. All of that. Jesus, go do the first one again. Back one. He received instruction and advice. His parents' advice was what? Come home. Weren't you supposed to be with us? Didn't you know I was about my father's business? How could you not know that God wanted me here in the temple? Jesus is doing what his heavenly father wants him to do. He's in the temple. He's teaching. He's leading. He's helping. He's answering questions. He's growing. That's, that's not a bad thing. But his parents have different instructions, different advice, and he, he yields to them. The next thing to write down is he went home with them. He went down with them, and he was subject to them. He didn't make this into a fight between his heavenly father and his earthly father. Because the command is pretty clear. Honor your father and mother. That's the law. He honors his father and his mother. He's subject to them. He goes home with them. So does Jesus fulfill Proverbs 1, 10, and 18? Does he heed instruction? Does he listen? Is he instructable? Does he take their advice? Yes, he does. Jesus lives out these Proverbs. And so I conclude on that little section with verse 52 of Luke chapter 2. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and with man. What I see as a conflict of, wait a minute, do the, Jesus just flowed from the heavenly father to his earthly father without skipping a beat and that pleased God and he continues to grow in grace he continues to grow in grace with God because he listens listens to his parents he takes their advice and he yields he subjects himself to them so does Jesus live out these proverbs proverbs 1 verse 1 verse 10 verse 18 absolutely what about verse 2 from the fruit of his mouth a man eats what is good but the desire of the treacherous is for violence. And three, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. And there are several other proverbs along this line of, of speaking and making good sense and acting with knowledge. Uh, Proverb 13, 6, and then in verse 15, verse 16, verse 17. Does Jesus live these proverbs out? The fruit of his mouth, is it good? Does his righteousness guard his way? Yes, it does. In Mark chapter 12, verse 34, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but it's interesting. Mark 12, first the Pharisees come to Jesus with hard questions. Then the Sadducees come to Jesus with their hard questions. Then the scribes come to Jesus with their hard questions. And every single time, Jesus answers them with wisdom, with carefulness, with righteousness, and with truth. And, and Mark 12, 34 says, And they dared not ask him another question. They were trying to trap him. They were the backside of verse two. Their desire was treacherous and violent. They wanted Jesus to betray himself so then they could treat him with violence. That was their intention. But Jesus 
the fruit of his mouth was only what is good and right and true, so true and so right and so appropriate that they could not find anything to use against him. Does Jesus embody and live out the Proverbs 100%? Well, so far, so far so good. Now verse four is kind of like the song. We're gonna skip to the end. We're gonna do verse, I'm, I'm taking verse four to the, the end of this train. So we'll come back to verse four. Verse five. The righteous hates falsehood, but the wicked brings shame and disgrace. Did anyone ever find any falsehood in Jesus? Not once. Ephesians 4.15, the encouragement to the churches, we are to speak the truth in love so that we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So we speak the truth in order to mature into the fullness of Jesus, which means Jesus is the fullness of truth. There's nothing false about him. Does Jesus live out Proverbs chapter 13, verse five? Yes, he only spoke the truth. It never brought him shame or disgrace. Verse six covered it. Verses seven, eight, and 11 talk about money and wealth. So let me read those. Verse seven, one pretends to be rich yet has nothing. Another person pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. What does that mean? Whether or not somebody has money is not easily accessible. They can look like they have a lot of money and be dead broke. They can look like they're poor and actually have a lot of money. So, appearances are deceptive. Verse 8. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. If you are a rich, wealthy person, it's gonna, it might cause you a lot of trouble. The more money you have, the more people want to take it. However, a poor man, no threat. <laughs> you have nothing people want to take. And then verse 11, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, study any lottery winner. Most lottery winners win millions of dollars and are broke within three to five years. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gains little by little will increase it. Keep slowly putting money into your retirement account. That also works. But on the Jesus level, verses seven, eight, and 11, my observation about Jesus was I don't know was he wealthy help me out here not really like on the earthly level but we can always spiritualize that right Jesus also possesses all the richness and the wisdom and knowledge of God I mean on the earthly scale, he's got one set of clothing. On the spiritual scale, he has everything. He appears to everyone as this poor backwater Nazareth guy, right? And yet when he speaks, no one speaks like this man. People are afraid to arrest him. People are afraid to ask him questions anymore. So it, it's a little bit of both. But here's what I get from this talk about money bringing trouble. Money can bring trouble. Jesus lived so simply financially that his enemies could only threaten him with one thing. You never hear them breathing out threats like, now we're gonna burn down your house if you don't stop it. We are gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna torch your farm. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna hurt your wife. We're gonna hurt your kids. Jesus lived so simply, so singularly dedicated to God the Father that the only thing his enemies could ever threaten him with was, we're gonna kill you. Like, you're just gonna cut straight to that? 
Yeah, that's all they've got. That's all they've got, and that's all they're going to get. And he's going to let them. Because even that to Jesus is not a threat. Not a threat to him. Interesting, though. Money can bring trouble. Why did Jesus not seem to have any money troubles? Because he didn't handle a lot of money. Even the money that people gave to him, he entrusted it... He entrusted it to who? Judas. (laughs) The very guy who was helping himself to the money, the money bag. And yet Jesus never lacked. Jesus is not even afraid to entrust what little is given to him to a liar and to a thief. Because you know why? God provides. Like zero anxiety about that. Not worried about it. Whoa. Just just pump the brakes for just a second. Do you want that kind of freedom to not worry about things? What is Jesus' example? The less stuff you worry about, the more focused you are on God the Father. Does Jesus embody these Proverbs? Oh yeah, very much so. Verse 9. The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. In John 8, 12, Jesus says clearly, I am the light of the world. He doesn't just offer them more guidance. He says, I am the light. It's me. Does Jesus embody Proverbs 13, 9? Yes. Can his lamp ever be put out? No. Proverbs 13:12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Every time Proverbs brings up the tree of life, you need to listen up. It's a common theme. It's going to come up in several chapters in a row. What should we be thinking of when the Bible mentions the tree of life? Well, where did the first tree of life appear? Help me out. Very beginning, God plants a garden. There's the tree of life. Adam and Eve are there. God says, partake of every tree except for this one over here. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. That that one is your boundary. Say no, but here's the tree of life. The tree of life represents the fullness of God, walking with God, feasting with God, God providing and you consuming. The, the, the tree of life is heaven on earth. It is the presence of God coming down to be present with man. So the tree of life is not just, well, there's this tree and if you eat from it. No, it, it represents way more than that. So when Solomon brings this up, a desire fulfilled is like the fullness of God manifested in your life. It's it's a big deal. Does Jesus embody this? Hebrews 12, verse 2, talks about this. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross. We talk about the crucifixion. We talk about his suffering. Why? Or better yet, what was on his mind when the whip was on his back? What was on his mind when the nails were piercing his hands and his feet? What was, what was going through Jesus' mind? It wasn't just the pain. Hebrews 12, 2 says, he's looking past his circumstances for the joy that is coming when he's done with what's right in front of him. That's a powerful way of thinking. When you're not just living in the moment, you're feeling the moment, you're thinking in the moment, you're making decisions in the moment, you're even helping other people in the moment. Jesus is, he's conscious of the moment, but that's not what's really motivating him. 
It's the joy that is set before him of knowing what he's about to accomplish and please God with. It's the joy of knowing what he's about to accomplish and ransom humanity with. It's the joy of knowing what he's about to accomplish and crush Satan's head. It's the joy of knowing he's about to be buried. He's going to burst forth alive again. He, all of those things, it's not just the here and now. And let me tell you, this is a heavy temptation whether you are 15 or 85 to be stuck with the problems that are in your life right now. This is a human problem. Teenagers get sucked into it. You get sucked into thinking about yourself, what's not going right in your life, what's not, what's wrong in your life, who likes me, who doesn't like me, who, li- who, 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 and, and you're stuck in the here and now and, and you mope about it. But I've also seen 90-year-olds mope about it. This is not a teen problem. This is not a senior citizen problem. It's a human problem. Whenever we are stuck looking at where life is right now and not looking forward to the joy that is ahead, having a hope that goes beyond our present circumstances, having a joy in something that is bigger than your suffering right now. Does Jesus prove this to be true? Absolutely. He went through a lot for the joy. And Solomon notes in verse 12, it, hope deferred, it makes the heart sick. You just, you, you, you want it, you want it, you're longing for it, like you just, mm, I can't wait. And when that desire is fulfilled, when that big desire, not just relief in the moment, but a desire that you have sunk all of your hope into, when that desire comes true, it changes you, changes you. So write this down. Right here where you are today, be holy, be patient, and think of the coming joy. The coming joy. Because that is what produces within us the tree of life. You want the tree of life. You want the presence of God. You want the fullness of God. Then you have got to hope in it, look forward to it, and not get distracted by what's going wrong in your life right now. Because you look hard enough, you will always find something in your life right now that you don't like. You look hard enough, there's plenty to be discouraged about. But if you hope far enough, there's also always something to look forward to. One of Jesus' great secrets of keeping his mind fixed on what was to be, not just wallowing, and his own blood. No wallowing with Jesus. Future and a hope. Verse 13. Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. That's fascinating. Like, there's just one word? Whoever despises the word. What is Solomon tapping into? What is the word? If you, don't, if you despise the word, you're bringing destruction on yourself. Well, he gives a little hint in the second part. But he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. I thought there were like 613 commandments. Solomon, which is the greatest commandment? Which one are you talking about? Jesus put some feet on that. What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. Boom. The ultimate word, the ultimate commandment. I have a strong suspicion Solomon is aware of that. To be the king, to be the son of David, to follow in the footsteps of Samuel and be anointed as the king of Israel. There were laws given from Moses and the king was supposed to have his own handwritten copy of the law. He would have at least been exposed to this once. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Worship the Lord your God only, and Him only shall you serve. Solomon knew this. Solomon was exposed to it. Don't despise the word. Did Jesus? No. 
Luke 10, 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That is the greatest commandment. Jesus embodies Proverbs 13, 13. He brought people back to the word and the commandment. Verse 14. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Teachings of the wise, fountain of life, living water. In John 7, 37, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Where does Jesus say we get the fountain of life? Him. He makes the Proverbs about himself. Not only is he living them out, he is embodying them 100%. Now verses 15, 16, 17, 18. Technically, I've rolled those into the outline and we've addressed those already. So I'm skipping to verse 19. Verse 19. A desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul, but to turn away from evil is an abomination to fools. I was really tempted to, to put 19 with 12, that hope deferred in the tree of life, but I'm letting it go on its own. A desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul. And the first thing that jumped to my mind was Matthew 6, when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is sweetness of soul. To place your life into the hands of the good shepherd. A desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul. And in the Lord's prayer, Jesus teaches us to roll even our desires back onto God. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. You meet my needs. I can't even resist evil. You help me avoid it. You see how he does that? That's what brings Jesus sweetness of soul. He lives it out. His sweetness of soul comes from 100% dependence upon God the Father in his prayer life and in every other area of his life. Verse 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Does Jesus believe that? Yes. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 4, 19, Come and follow me. <laughs> he wants them to grow in the wisdom that he's already grown in. Jesus understands that Proverbs 13, 20 is true. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. Verse 21, disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. Disaster pursues everybody. <laughs> So what it, where does that second part come in and prove to be true? That the righteous are rewarded with good. Romans 8, 28. Those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those who love God, dot, 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 will be conformed to the image of his son. Disaster pursues sinners, people not being conformed to the image of his son. But the righteous, those are the people who've confessed, who are agreeing with God, who've placed their lives in God's hands. That's the only thing that makes you righteous, faith in God. The righteous are rewarded with good. God works it all out. But he doesn't just work it all out so your life is smooth. Romans 8, he works it all out, dot, 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 so that you would be conformed or changed into the image of his son. 
Have you thought about that? That, that verse is awesome. All things will work together for good. That makes a good plaque, but it goes on. You can have dot, dot, dot. So that you will be conformed, changed, glorified, made new, improved into the image of Jesus. You are supposed to look and act and breathe like Jesus. You are supposed to live out the Proverbs like he did. You are now the light of the world. You are the city set on a hill. You are the good word that people hear. How can they hear unless we preach? How can they hear unless we are sent? Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. Hear the word. Jesus puts it all back on us. Go make disciples. Are you doing that? Is Jesus living out the Proverbs? Yes. Is he convicting me over the Proverbs? Oh, yes. Proverbs 13, 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. What kind of inheritance did Jesus live? Zip. Does that mean he's not a good man? No, this is not... This is not, if you leave an inheritance, now you are good. It's even phrased that this way. The good sometimes leave an inheritance. It's a general observation because Jesus himself didn't leave an inheritance. Uh, let me ask you why. Why didn't Jesus leave an inheritance? Huh? He didn't have anything to leave, first of all. Good answer. It's not about the money. That's also a good answer. I propose to you, he never left. You only leave an inheritance when you're gone. He's not gone. Lo, I am with you always. Now, physically, he has ascended back into heaven. But right before he ascended in front of his disciples on top of the mountain, he said out loud, I will never leave you. And then, whoop, he leaves them. So either he's, it's a huge walking, floating contradiction. Wait, you said you never leave, you just left. I'm not following you anymore. Or he meant something deeper because he had already breathed on them the Holy Spirit. He'd already told them in John 13, 14, and 15 that he is sending the Spirit to be their paraclete. He never left. He's with them still in spirit. He's with us still in spirit. He doesn't need to give us any kind of inheritance. Newsflash. Jesus is your treasure. Not what Jesus gives you. Jesus is your inheritance. Not what he makes you. Who he is to you. That is such a different way of thinking. Jesus is my all and all. Is that making sense? He's the inheritance. He doesn't leave us anything because he's given us himself. And he could never give us anything more than himself. That's it. The greatest gift God has ever given the world is his son. And, it, and we have him. We have him. Man, I want to preach a sermon on that one. All right, where did I leave off? Verse 23, wrapping it up here. Verse 23, the, the foul, oh, this was one of the hardest um, verses that commentators had to deal with in Proverbs 13. And it, there's a wide spectrum of how it's translated in different translations. So I'm not even gonna struggle with um, trying to get the translation right because we can get the point. The point is there's potential in a field. And sometimes injustice wipes out the crop. That's the point. The point is there's potential. Now, whether the injustice is because somebody's oppressing a poor man and not letting him farm or stealing his crops, or whether it's because the poor man is poor because he's lazy and he's not sowing the field, working the field the way he should be, and he's, he's acting unjustly towards what God has blessed him with. Either way, it's about uh, a missed opportunity. So when Jesus casually mentions that we will have the poor with us always, 
Jesus is reminding us that the second coming, his second coming to this world is the only thing that will remove our suffering. There's always going to be injustice. There are always going to be missed opportunities. Does Jesus address that all the time? He has parable after parable about being a good steward. He has parable after parable about uh, tackling what's right in front of you, not worrying about other things, but being a faithful servant of God. Like, Jesus addresses that. Don't, and, and, but you can still miss it. Even a believer can not live out their fullest potential. So Jesus, he, he embodies this. Um, so watch out for it. Verse 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. We need to correct and train our children, hear me, appropriately. We need to train and correct our children appropriately. So they learn there are consequences in life for disobedience. It's best that they learn the consequences from family members who love them rather than never get learning about consequences and look down the barrel of a gun. It's good to learn and how we do that is going to, and we need to be, show a lot of grace, a lot of patience with each other because we're all going to discipline our kids differently. But let me turn the corner on that. That's how I always look at this verse until right now. You're the child in that verse, grown up. And Jesus is the parent. Does Jesus embody this verse with grown ups? Get behind me, Satan, Jesus says to Peter's face. Peter, you are going to betray me. I would never betray you. Before the end of the night, you will deny knowing me. They go to arrest Jesus. Peter's whacking off people's ears. Whoosh, stop. Jesus has to stop Peter again. Like this Peter guy is out of control. Who chose him as a disciple? What's going on? And yet Jesus rebukes him. Jesus corrects him. Does God correct his children? You're his children. So many times I just read this verse and think of it as a parent and I don't put myself... I'm the son who still needs to be disciplined. You're never going to grow out of that, Roy. You're never going to grow out of that. Any of you. We are all the sons and daughters of God. And as long as we breathe, he has to discipline us, correct us, and bring the rod down on us in ways, shapes, and forms that are going to be different. But we better not buck up against that. We need to be teachable. We need to be instructable. And if you are, that will change the way you discipline your own kids. If you see yourself, you're the one. I'll tell you what, kids are not ruining this world. Kids are not committing all the crimes. Kids are not all of the addicts. It's grown-ups. We are the ones who need to be disciplined by God. And it's not all outside the church. We are the ones who struggle with addictions and pornography and gambling and gossip and gluttony and adultery of heart and hatred of our neighbors. That's us. We need God to bring the rod and you're gonna hurt. Don't just think that's on how I'm gonna raise my kids and my grandkids. Holy smokes. Jesus doesn't lift a hand against any kids. You know who he's the harshest on? The grown men who don't rise up and do what he already told them to do. But there's grace. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Tend my sheep. Peter, do you really love me? Feed my sheep. Three specific instances when Jesus tells Peter, stop it. Three specific words of restoration. Get up. You've got work to do. Follow me. Keep following me. 
even with discipline, there is grace. Amen. And we need it. Last, but certainly not least, is verse 25. And I'm, I'm teaming it up with verse 4. So let me go back and read verse 4. This is our conclusion. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Verse 25. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. Now in your notes, we need to skip a blank and do the word nefesh next. Write this down, nefesh. It's the Hebrew word for soul or spirit or living being. And in my Bible, it's translated appetite. Uh, bad translation. It's the same word used in verse 4. The soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Verse 25 is the word soul. The reason a lot of translations put the word belly or appetite there is because the second part of verse 25 says the belly of the wicked. So they think there's parallelism there between the belly of the righteous man and the belly of the... Now that's, that's, not, that's not where it's going. It's saying... The soul of the righteous man, the soul is satisfied. The wicked, man, they can't even fill their belly. But the righteous, they are full on another level of satisfaction and purpose. The wicked, they're just thinking about what they're going to eat next. But the righteous, their soul. The soul of the sluggard, verse 4, craves and gets nothing it's not going to be satisfied while the soul of the diligent and in proverbs the diligent is the righteous the the righteous man the wise man the hard-working man the faithful man the word keeper the covenant keeper it's the person who's walking in the footsteps of god they're satisfied with what however verse 25 says they have the righteous has enough to satisfy his soul enough what well, if it's the word soul, what is the only thing that can satisfy your soul? God. It's a spiritual thing. This is not just a book that's all practical on working, handling your money, disciplining your kids. This book is after your heart, man. The righteous has enough to satisfy his soul. So your next blank is from John 4, 31. When Jesus says to his disciples, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. If you know John chapter 4, Jesus has been hanging out at a well in the desert in the middle of the day talking with an unbeliever. She runs to the city and tells everybody, come see this guy who's told me everything I've ever done. While she's gone, while the city is coming, Jesus' disciples come back, say, hey, here, here's some food. And Jesus says, I don't need any food. I have food to eat of that you know nothing about. They're like, who's been here feeding Jesus? Come on now. Like, they're about to have a throwdown. That's my job to feed Jesus. Like, they're genuinely like, who fed Jesus? And Jesus is, you don't, you don't get it. There are times when Jesus goes to banquets. He had a banquet at Zacchaeus' house. He had a banquet with uh, some Pharisees. He had meals with Lazarus, Mary and Martha. He was hungry and he ate. There were times when Jesus was starving and didn't have anything to eat. Temptation in the wilderness. He feels hunger. He feels pain. And in this instance, he doesn't eat anything and he's filled. God can meet your needs right in the middle of all of your circumstances if you are doing what he calls you to do. Jesus is the righteous person whose soul is satisfied with God. Isn't that sweet? Jesus. Doesn't mean he didn't ever eat. He ate. But there was this moment, this, this little... This little moment of time 
We, we read about all these huge miracles that occur through Jesus. It's the Spirit. He gives all the credit to the Spirit of God doing the miracles. Jesus is just there and is going through them. All these wild miracles, walking on water, feeding thousands of people. This is a miracle. Jesus didn't have to have lunch that day. He was doing what God told him to do, and God said, you're full. What? But not just your belly, not just your appetite. That's what the wicked desire. Here's your soul. Jesus is teaching us by living out all of these proverbs that when we are right with God, we are full of God. And there is no better feeling you can ever experience than the fullness of the presence of the Father and the Son and the Spirit in your life at a given moment of time. It is soul satisfying. So let me conclude by asking you, how richly satisfied is your soul? Man, I'm seeing, I'm feeling the speed of summer. I'm feeling the weight of school starting like the first week of August. You're like, what? What happened to Labor Day? Where, are you kidding me? Where, what's going on? Something's broken. I'm feeling the speed. I'm feeling the weight of it. And I'm asking you, are you still taking time to rest and let God satisfy your soul? Another way of saying it is, do you really believe Jesus and his teachings are enough? Do you really believe Jesus and the things he teaches are enough to satisfy you? If you do, you will be different. And if you don't, you will keep chasing after other things. Stand with me. Let's pray. Bow your heads. Close your, close your eyes for just a moment. When I think about a satisfied soul, when I think about resting in Jesus, when I think about God filling me up, when I think about God filling me up, I realize I'm already full. I'm already too busy. My schedule is already booked. My plans are already made. And I don't have room for God. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, is that you? Have you filled your life up with so many other things that God has no room to pour in? I challenge you to release some of that this morning. Even release your good plans because God has better plans. Or maybe the things you've piled into your life are addictions, habits, influences outside of yourself that are beating you down, leading you astray, and you know it, but you keep feeding yourself with it anyway. Maybe you need to release those things to God this morning. God, we pour our hearts out before you this morning. Teach us, change us, so that we can hunger and thirst for righteousness again like we never have before. May Jesus become more important to us than he ever has been before. Help us to make the time, to find the time. Help us to find somebody in our lives that we can uh, share our hearts with, that we can do a Bible study with, that we can share scripture with. God, give me somebody. I need some accountability. Help us to find somebody to connect with, to reach out to. Change us, all of us, in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>
seas that are shaken and stirred can be calmed and broken for my regard. And through it all, through it all, my eyes are on you. Through it all, through it all, it is well. Through it all, through it all, my eyes are on you, and it is well with me. And far be it from me to not believe. Even when my eyes can't see And this mountain that's in front of me Will be thrown into the midst of the sea Through it all, through it all My eyes are on you Through it all through it all it is well Through it all, through it all My eyes are on you And it is well It is well So let go my soul And trust in Him The waves and winds still know His name. So let go my soul and trust in Him. The winds and wind still know His name. So let go my soul and trust in Him. The winds and wind still Waves and winds still know His name. It is well with my soul. It is well. today is from Colossians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10. See to it 
that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of man, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>